We are this water. We drink this water. This is it's such an intimate way to know the lands and waters is by paddling. The journey is the most important thing. Living the journey, being a part of, of everything that you're, you're paddling by, you're walking by, portaging by. Just make it fun, make it meaningful. And somewhere along the way, if you can make a difference to making this world better, that's so much the better. That's Gary and Joni McGuffin, the first couple of Canadian canoeing. As I get into in the podcast, they have arguably paddled more of Canada's waterways than any other couple. And along the way, they've produced best-selling books, award-winning photography and documentaries. They've set up conservancies in the Great Lakes. They have also set up traveling exhibits. Their work is incredible and ongoing, and we're thrilled to have them as our guest on this, the third and last of our Canadian canoeing series here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. And welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. We'd love to hear where you're listening to this podcast. And if there's a great photo opportunity in front of you, take that picture and send it in to us. You can email it at explore at canadiangeographic.ca or you can tag us on Twitter and Instagram at CanGeo. I'm also on Twitter at McGuffinDavid and on Instagram at david.mcguffin. So send those along. We'd love to know who you are and where you're listening. And also my regular reminder that you can get a subscription to Canada's greatest magazine, Canadian Geographic. For just $28.50, you get six print editions sent to your house or wherever you want, as well as full digital access to the magazine and its archives online. And it's filled with award-winning journalism, award-winning photography, incredible maps. Who doesn't love maps? I love to spread out a map and let my imagination run wild. So go to canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe and get your subscription signed up there. You won't regret it. It also makes a wonderful gift. So Gary and Joni McGuffin, first of all, we share a last name and we'll get into that. Uh, we're not related or we're very distantly related. Basically, there are very few MacGuffins in the world, so if your last name is MacGuffin, there's a good chance we're related. But the main thing is I'd never met with them until I did this interview. I've been very aware of their career since the 1980s, when they're really their first paddling adventure together was this very small matter of paddling from the Atlantic Ocean all the way up through Canada, all the way to the Arctic Ocean over two paddling seasons. It's an amazing journey, which they chronicled in their book, Where Rivers Run, which I highly recommend reading. They also have done a number of other incredible things. One of the more recent things was an award-winning documentary they did on the Group of Seven, where they paddled around big chunks of Northern Ontario, finding the sites where the Group of Seven did some of their most famous paintings, photographing that, videoing that. Also a beautiful documentary, and we, we talk about that more. I could go on about their resume for the next 10 minutes, but really, I think let's just jump into this conversation because it's really, it's a fun one, a fascinating one, and an inspiring one. Joni and Gary McGuffin, welcome to the Canadian Geographic Explore podcast. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Thanks, David. It's wonderful to see you and hear you. <laughs> well, it's great to have you guys both here. I mean, you're both, there's probably not a couple who's paddled more waterways in this country together than you two. I can't imagine that there is. So we're really thrilled to have you and, and to hear some of your stories. Um, I, I just want to clear something up, though, just so people don't think this is nepotism. Um, <laughs> G Gary and I are likely distantly related, but not closely. My family came over in 1910, probably in an ocean liner, and Gary's family had a much more dramatic entry into Canada. Gary, can you just share that? And it was much be long before 1910. Well, it was, it was actually 1810. Uh, tracing back the MacGuffin clan to Collinsay Island, uh, we had to leave Collinsay Island around 1650, and we spent about 200 years in Ireland, north of, northern part of Ireland. And uh, I don't know whether it was the potato famine, what it was, but uh, um, 1810, uh, they sailed to New York. And uh, there were 13 uh, family members altogether, um, 11 kids. And the, as soon as they landed, uh, the two eldest boys were commandeered into the militia. And they didn't like that idea because they were kind of fleeing from all of that. Uh, and uh, the story was that they were shot when they went overboard, but then 
we always wonder, well, how did the MacGuffins get to Canada? And the other story is that uh, they weren't. Uh, they they got safely to land and they ran north. Um, that, that's what their dad told them to do. If you get into any trouble, just run, run north. You're going to run into the British again eventually, um, but they should look after you. And that's what happened. Yeah. So so landed in New York, but then quickly hightailed it to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a story of coming across uh, a, a band of uh, folks from that were part of Tecumseh. Uh, Tecumseh's band and I think they were told at that time uh, you you can either come and 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 fight with us or we'll we'll probably just kill you here you can decide and th so I, that's that's how they were commandeered into the British militia ha huh. amazing that's um well you can sort of see where the intrepid genes come from then I'm, I'm always kind of cu curious curious where our explorers get their you know get get that extra push to to do the things they do I, I'm, I'm curious too just sort of more recently like in your childhood or Joni where yeah. where where did the canoeing bug first bite you like mm -hmm. where where do you trace that back to well I think a love of water and my mom and dad uh built a uh cottage in the Muskokas which back then was a, like a much smaller <laughs> endeavor <laughs> and um, it's where we spent our summers so um, uh, we had a, a, a red canvas canoe that actually Gary and I were just out in on the Muskoka River where my mom still lives oh, amazing. and that was you know we spent all our summers on the water and so in the canoe gunnel bobbing dad got a sailing kit uh, for the canoe so yeah, just exploring around and having that opportunity as a kid where, uh, you know, your your parents aren't uh, controlling the mm. canoe. They're putting you in the canoe, letting you fool around. You got a PFD on, but um, just learning how it works and exploring the shoreline and, and seeing the canoe as really, um, you know, the way you can get around in the summer. So it was just so much fun, me and my sister and brother and <laughs> amazing We're, freedom right yeah yeah no it is amazing just, just to even get out of the bay away from the cottage sort of thing is like the big adventure isn't it when you're that yeah age. yeah yeah I didn't grow up in a like a tripping background mm -hmm. um, where we went camping but uh, I was out on the water and outdoors all summer and it was really when I met Gary at Seneca College in um, we were taking an outdoor recreation technology program way, way back. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we were both looking to find our way of making a living in the outdoors. And uh, I, I thought of, well, the approach of um, helping out wildlife biologists in the field somehow. I had some romantic idea that I could plan the expeditions for them. And then I met Gary. And then you met Gary. So... <laughs> So and he had a way better plan. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, Gary, where does it start for you then? Like, where does this love of the canoe begin? Uh, re really, with my mom and dad, they were they both were born on farms, and they grew up as young kids, uh, subsistence hunting, trapping, fishing. Oh wow! So the canoe was a, a means to an end to hunt and fish. Uh, same thing with with skiing and snowshoeing in the winter time. Uh, everything was based around uh, survival. This is down southwestern uh, Ontario, is that right? Yes, this mm -hmm. is uh, just outside, uh, just north of London, Thorndale, mm -hmm. uh, on the banks of the Thames River. Ah, amazing. And and so it, was canoe tripping part of that childhood for you then? Or? Oh, very much so. Yeah, the, the, the canoe was the way you, you got to inland lakes. Um, well, I... I I spent all my summers from the time I was born till I was 16 in Tomogamy. Ah, beautiful. So I've been there, so I, I literally have a mind map of Tomogamy. I don't, I can travel through Tomogamy. I don't need to bring any maps or anything with me. That's amazing. So is there a cottage there? Or what was that? Well, we, yeah, my dad built a deer hunting camp in the early 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I, that's, I wasn't born there, but couple couple months after I was born I, I spent my summer first summer there and uh, that and that was all all fishing exploring canoe tripping um, and then comes fall that we're, we're moose hunting hunting for grouse um, and what we would come back to London for winter and that's why I would go to school 
and wow. play hockey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's always that culture shock moment when you have to put shoes on uh, again and go to school, right? Like, uh, yeah. So and and they and my mom and my mom was forty two when she had me. My dad was forty four. Mm-hmm. So they had this. I mean, they, they already had their whole life. I mean, they, they they were established. So when I came along, my mom and dad essentially had almost ninety years of life experience between the two of them. So they were elders. I mean, it wasn't about trying to survive as a young couple having a, a child come along um, I was late in life so uh, I mean I, I was instantaneously plugged into to how to handle a rifle how to use a shotgun how to reload right, shells right. how to build fishing lures how to carve paddles uh, how to pick up canoes just just how to, how to how to find your way in the woods were I, you the I, first I, child Oh, the old, yeah, the he only was one. a surprise. I was yeah. a surprise. <laughs> a very late surprise sent his mom to me. Take um, him home and spoil him rotten, she was told. <laughs> this is 1959. A lot of women are having children later in life now, but yeah, for Lorraine and Merv, it was quite an, ex, uh, an exciting She probably uh, thought time. she was going through menopause initially or something. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you were thrown right in. You were just a team member from Give a Get Go. Sounds like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I had to. I had for, yeah. From the get go, I yeah. had to pull my weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> so you guys met at at, at, at Seneca College, yeah? and uh, so I think the way most of us came to know the two of you was this epic, epic uh, cross country canoe trip you did, uh, and there's an amazing book that came out of it where rivers run. Um, but you, over two paddling seasons, went from the Atlantic Ocean up to the Arctic Ocean. And uh, I think you have to be young to plan a trip like that. <laughs> Can you tell us where the, <laughs> the germ of that trip came from? Well, in 1981, um, after we graduated from college, uh, well, actually before we finished, Gary had said to me, um, would you like to walk the Appalachian Trail with me? And I said, sure, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> I had never even been on a backpacking trip before. So for those, it's a 2,100-mile trail. It goes from Georgia to Maine through 14 states. And Gary had seen it in National Geographic years ago and thought that would be a cool trip to do. And he probably thought, look, if Joni could survive this with me, that would be a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, we we undertook that. But while we were on that journey walking north, um, we were talking about paddling, the first love of our life. In yeah. the outdoors was definitely to be on the water. We missed it lots. And um, so we started talking about planning this. And I think we were actually on Rabbit Lake where the cabin is that Gary built uh, when we were out there paddling. And Gary said, um, you know, we, we, should, uh, we should paddle all the way from, you know, salt water to salt water. And one of the places I knew about, but had never been there was Lake Superior. My mom and dad would go there in the fall and spend a week when my grandparents came over from England and they always would do this this week away and we'd hear this romantic mm. place of Lake Superior and Waylon Drew and Bruce Little John's book Lake Superior the Haunted Shore was just our only coffee table book. So I really wanted that to be part of the journey and as it is it was a route that connected all those lakes formed by the glaciers and that big necklace across Turtle Island, North America. Mm-hmm. And the idea of paddling saltwater to saltwater was just, it's really practical as well as being um, a really amazing way to to see the country. Um, yeah, that's, I don't know, Gary, you can add more. It's <laughs> you're really the organizer. <laughs> I know when I first kind of went to Thornhill to visit Joni's mom and dad, mm. There on the coffee table was Wayland Drew and Bruce Littlejohn's book, Superior the Haunted Shore. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that was always a destination that I thought of paddling at some point in my life. And when I first met, the first day I met Joni at Seneca College, she'd been, she was, she asked me, I've just been offered an opportunity to work with a woman, uh, a whale researcher by the name of Leonie Papard, and she would like me. Um, now, first day of school, to come and spend a month with her on the Saguenay River, yeah, and uh, and and try and capture underwater imagery of the white whales. And Joni said, "Should I go?" And I said, "If I was you, I'd be going. For sure. <laughs> I'll take notes for you." 
And that's what he did. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, of course. Just say yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so I think it was it was kind of that. Na- I, we'd always, well, I always wanted to paddle a big river to the Arctic Ocean, paddle on the Great Lakes, and uh, and 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 having Joni now had that having had that experience, we needed we needed to incorporate the white whale story into our our journey so we, we, that's why we wanted to start far enough out into the gulf of st lawrence and then paddle into their lives uh, amazing so you guys went so you started sort of up in the gaspe is that right or uh, yeah not yeah. quite as far out mm-hmm. as that we mm-hmm. we started with various ideas and then it became a practical um way of how on earth are we going to get out there yeah and uh gary from being from london ontario the london free press yeah. uh, took an interest in following the story and so i think it was gord sanderson the writer he came out mm-hmm. with us and or flew out anyways he was to drive our van home again and uh, getting to bay como which became famous later that year i think it was 1983 when yeah, brian, brian Mulroney Mulroney, got yeah. <laughs> so now yeah. everybody knew where we we started and we arrived out there and it's like may may 5th when we start so it's early may and we're driving along we're, uh, also we have just gotten married <laughs> we got married on the 30th of april in 1983 so this is the honeymoon and nice we yeah like yeah. that's what everybody called it was the honeymoon and we thought well <laughs> It's a rugged honeymoon. Someone asked on the trip, a, a child asked us, uh, hey, did you win this trip? <laughs> I always remember that line. But we're watching like the big waves, the tides, the rain is just beating on the windscreen and the, we've got the windshield wipers on high. And we're both not saying anything. We're both terrified. Like I'm sure I'm very terrified. I've never been out in tides. We are prepared in that we have the best equipment, we have skills, uh, we have our wetsuits, you know, we just, we know as much as we do, but we still haven't been in an environment quite this foreign and quite this rugged. And people in Bay Como said, well, maybe you could come back in a month, all the inland lakes are frozen. <laughs> we said, well, actually, we're going on the St. Lawrence River. Well, they all thought we were crazy, but the sun dawned bright and sunny on that May 5th, which was a good um, good feng shui to begin a journey. <laughs> yeah, no, beautiful. And we just set off and, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we just had Adam Schultz on the podcast, who's done a, a Sort of a some sort of a reverse of what you did. He went from Fort uh, from Lake Erie up to the Arctic Ocean. Um, yeah, like it. That's uh, the thing, you know, the uh, the Great Lakes corridor and all yeah. the way up to the Arctic coast is a real necklace of rivers and waterways that are in six thousand miles, ten thousand kilometers. There was sixty miles of portaging, but that was all pretty well all to avoid unnavigable water. Right. It wasn't that the water isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. What he was saying was the most difficult part was, and he, he was happy when he started getting north and heading towards the Arctic Ocean, was just getting away from cities. And the real challenges he found were getting past the Montreals and the, you know, the Torontos and all that kind of thing. And I'm, was, what was that like for you guys? Well, I, I want to say that that was pretty foundational, I think, for us to um, know that we probably stick together for our lives because we had one really foundational thing between us and that was we really cared about the water in these wild places Mm -hmm. the animals the birds the whales and all of that and what we could see in the St. Lawrence at that time 40 years ago was you know the pipes coming out of industry coming out of homes coming out of communities and that scene from Paddle to the Sea right it's almost that scene from Paddle to the Sea where poor that's Honestly, we paddled right through Bill Mason's Paddle to the Sea scene um, with uh, the paper mills on the North Shore of Lake Superior. And we're paddling through that foam. And we are thinking about that we are this water. We drink this water. This is such an intimate way to know the lands and waters um, is by paddling and so Gary and I were like super connected we loved bird watching and we all had our binoculars out and we just we loved all this but we were really and Gary growing up in a hunting and fishing family where you get your food from the water and the lands was super connected with the idea that 
these might not be very healthy fish to no. eat or you know what's happening with the whales and I knew a bit of that from that work so that was a really big foundational piece of our entire lives together to be honest was how do we use these adventuring stories as a way to care and connect with the land and get other people out there also doing in a safe way mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but but really getting to know the land in an intimate way that makes us care more for about what we can do for it rather mm-hmm. than what we can take from it. What's a happy memory you have from that trip, like one that really stands out, Gary? Uh, well, I, I think the conclusion of any trip it, uh, definitely is, uh, that is stands out. That is always a good feeling. <laughs> Hot shower. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just think the uh, accomplishing something of that nature with a life partner mm-hmm. um, and I just, I think everything that we learned about about Turtle Island, about, I mean, it's just now having having had that experience, you can, and seen it, paddle to these places that took months to get to and then months to, to, to uh, leave from, you now have this incredible vision of this, of Turtle Island and this necklace of waterways. And it really, it just gave us a plethora of opportunities to think of and dream of for doing other journeys, like like coming back to Lake Superior. When we first paddled mm-hmm. from, we came out, we came past here at Bawating, got out onto the lake, and we were 10 days paddling from Sault Ste. Marie, Sault Ste. Marie to Grand Portage, paddling 50 to 60 miles a day. And we thought, man, and we just, we, we love the lake. Uh, never been on a, a lake this big ever. Mm. And we just thought we got to come back and, uh, and, and, and spend a whole season just paddling around Lake Superior. Which you guys definitely, you went ahead and did that as well, for sure. I'd, I'm, I'm struck, I mean, you've, you're basically following the old Voyageur routes, right, for much of this trip. So, well. so up the Ottawa, was it the French sort of into the... Into, yeah, into the Great and Lakes. people historically um, in more modern day would call them that, mm. but um, we do like to remember that people for tens of thousands of years have been paddling oh, these yeah. waterways, yeah. and so they were then followed by people in the fur trade and so on and shown the way. No question. So the practical route up the Ottawa, which um, then coming in through... Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Mattawa River and then portaging at North Bay down the French into the North Channel and then uh, through the Sioux Locks and up to the height of Lake Superior. So now we're at the height of the Great Lakes. So essentially, um, once we leave Lake Superior at Grand Portage, which is a nine mile walk, it's avoiding all the falls and rapids on what is the U.S. Canada border, but is again essentially a waterway that's been that's traveled the pig- the pigeon river. at the Pigeon River yeah mm-hmm. and um, that uh, took us into the Hudson Bay watershed Hudson Bay James Bay watershed yeah. and we were then um, you know heading downstream now finally, to head yeah. to Lake Winnipeg that's and a long so, way to get downstream finally. yeah <laughs> like it is yeah because um, that's what people don't you're going upstream you're going downstream you're going one way or the other even when you're on lakes mm. you're actually on a moving waterway yeah. it's moving very slowly <laughs> yeah. Lake Superior takes 200 years to flow out here at the yeah. St. Mary's but that was you know the connection and what's really cool about this is when it takes a really long time you're traveling at the speed of paddling and you're following those maps and you're you're just you never forget it this is like 40 years ago and I can see it all in my mind and you can see all the campsites you can see all the places where you stopped where you met people like that's a real highlight on being on a journey especially from the water you come in the back door of people's lives yeah. in a way that makes you feel uh, them feel very trusting towards you and people especially back then before Uh, the internet and Google Earth and all of that stuff. We literally had, you know, a topographic map that showed us one inch to um, five miles was mostly our, uh, the 250,000 scale. And um, they want to know like where, what's, you know, what was downstream or upstream from us and, and where are you going? And we would look at these maps together and they would be so fascinated to realize like, 
you know, the canoe was connecting us to these communities and these people and these places in a way that, you know, people have done for tens of thousands of years and knew those connections. These are the ancient highways. But traveling on land now, they're not thinking about that. And when you cross over a bridge, you know, you we are passing underneath it. And we're knowing, like, where's the what, which way it's flowing, where it's come from, where it's going to. And so um, that was a really beautiful, and I would say a highlight of the experience was really getting to some of the northern communities mm. that I had, I mean, I really, I didn't grow up uh, in, in an indigenous yeah. community life way in knowing, and it's really only been in very recent years that I would even refer to North America as Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. But the meeting of people in the northern communities, indigenous nations, and children who were fascinated by our vessel and getting on board and being able to paddle and actually realizing that they really hadn't had that chance in recent years to do that was such a beautiful experience to to share with people along the way no and amazing to be around people who have a connection to that land that go back you know it's it's woven in their dna basically isn't it really? yeah you're like, seeing all the racks of smoked white fish yeah, and you're looking at yeah. the beadwork and you're going into people's places or in ceremony and you're in uh in just in connection with the land in a whole new way and then you're arriving in a way that relates to that and uh, that was a very beautiful part of the journey. So what advice would you have to a younger couple like yourselves who might be embarking on a trip like that today? A lot of people contact us and they want to know how to, how to finance it. Yeah. And they're thinking about sponsorship and they start thinking, oh, we have to get a book contract or we have to make a film or we have to share this on social media. All of a sudden you get all these built up pressures of what you have to do on the journey when the journey is that's the most important thing mm -hmm. it's just it's just living the journey being a part of of everything that you're you're paddling by you're walking by portaging by and um it's your and it's your relationship and just giving yourself enough time and not heaping on a whole bunch of pressures pressures as to what has to be accomplished from the journey the main thing is to is to have a good time on the journey and to in whatever it the journey throws at you your relationship has to work around that and i would say for any couple just do a canoe trip anywhere mm -hmm. and go out for just like go out for at least four days yeah uh, then you can get like as it takes two or three days just to kind of get comfortable with all your with mm -hmm. where all your stuff yeah. is and where you've put it um and then ease into that fourth fifth sixth day and and just and, and not have any uh, intentions about you have to travel great distances it's just about learning who each other who who you are uh, and like yeah like who you are mm -hmm. and who your maybe your future spouse is um, or lifetime friend and that's all i can say is just take your time um and and don't come up with any wild expectations that this is going to uh, lead to a, a a career in the outdoors. Um, just make it make it fun, make it meaningful, um, and uh, somewhere along the way, if you can make a difference to making this world better, um, that's so much the better. So for that first trip, did you guys was that self finance initially, and then everything else sort of followed as you went, or? No, we actually uh, a thought came to me because I was from London and I looked at what was the one of the oldest industries in London, Ontario, and that was a brewery and that was Labatt Breweries. Uh -huh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we went we we went to Lab oh, actually I knew I knew you know I had a a relative that worked at Labatt's and he said I think you sh you should approach uh, uh, Labatt Brewing Company. Uh, there's another company that might be interested in Molson's, and maybe if you if you lever the two two against one another, Labatt's may come through. So anyway, that's what we we did, and I, and the biggest challenge I think was uh, going into the head office in Labatt's in Toronto, uh, and kind of selling them on the idea. But their first question was, well, how? I, they didn't believe there was actually a way to get across Canada by canoe. <laughs> so that's so I did I went to my grade 12 uh, 
Cliff Oliver, my grade 12, 13 geography teacher in high school. And uh, he, he, he gave me some good articles and uh, I made sure I got those to uh, Labatt Brewery so they could see officially that there was, there was originally a route across Canada and that's what we were going to be rediscovering. Yeah, and, and you guys have been really good about the publicity side of things too, which is definitely, you know, for an explorer in this day and age especially is a, a, a part of it. And I just, how do you, I mean, and I, I think, Joni, you, you'd wind up doing a lot of the writing and the interviews and stuff. Uh, I mean, how do you, how have you managed that and how has that changed, I guess, in the, in the years since you've been doing this? Well, it's interesting that uh, radio really started that whole idea. I mean, when... Um Gary had the idea of getting support because we literally did not have the money to do this and yeah. spend all his time. But because it was unique and what we were doing, there was appeal there. And CBC Radio came to us and asked us if we'd do a weekly broadcast. And so um, Bob Burt was the producer, Alan Miller was the interviewer. Mm -hmm. And we said, we'll call you in every week. But remember, there are no cell phones. There is no satellite phones or anything like that. We're doing this from telephone booths. No way. And so <laughs> we literally Literally, our I think our one of our very first ones. We are literally like it's storming on the St. Lawrence, and we are in. We get up from the shore, and we find a telephone booth, and there's this this dog running at us, and we jump into this phone booth, and it's barking madly outside the phone booth while we're calling into the CBC, and we're like, it's not looking very pleased with us here, and we're like protected by this little phone booth, but. We either it was a phone booth or it was someone's home or it was radio a radio phones. phones in the north or we would record an interview. Um, they always tried to come out on a Thursday. So sometimes we would like record on the Friday because we got a big long yeah. route before we're going to get to the next one. So that became the regular kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And then in 1997, when we did, um, we call it our ancient forest journey and we paddled from Algonquin Park across 12 watersheds, finishing at the tip of St. Joe's Island we came out on Lake Superior, but mm -hmm. those rivers and lakes in northern Ontario, we were passing through um, the country that um, we knew Grey Owl, uh, reading his books, right. and also these uh, pine forests uh, that we were interested in telling people about. And it was just kind of a, a way to do this. But at the time in 1997, uh, putting um, the technology together was... 100 pounds in a like a big pelican box with a 30 pound satellite phone and oh my a God. big thick Mac yeah. and and Canon um, Kodak's first digital camera SLR camera and they at the time Southern News was trying to create a, an and a way for getting encouraging photographers at newspapers to use digital mm -hmm. cameras. And they said, if you guys can do this from Make this wilderness yeah. journey and use solar power to connect every week. And so wow. that's what we did. We kept this weekly um, newspaper and radio. That and we were, you know, it was a lot of work and we never used the technology because we wanted to tell people about ourselves yeah. it was more that th this was a way of telling a story in real time and it seems so to anyone listening who's you know younger than us they like you don't almost under even understand or comprehend the idea before computers and cell phones yeah and the idea now that um when gary was describing that i think you honestly can use technology in a way now that is a lot less intrusive because mm -hmm. it's not so big, it's small. Uh, you can do these really fun ways of connecting with people in real time. And it doesn't need to be onerous for you because you don't need to come into a community at a certain time and do something. You can actually bring people along with you. And I think that can be an enormous motivation for connecting technology in a really good way. Super savvy young people with technology mm -hmm. who also love the outdoors can tell conservation stories in real time at the speed with which we need them told now to tell the story of what's happening to this beautiful planet we live on so i think there's um there's great um you know and you can do it in shorter bites you yeah. don't need to go on really long but the, the point is to be you know safe and go in a way that because people look at what you do not 
show me what you're doing, not tell me what you're doing. <laughs> and if you travel in unsafe ways, doing crazy things that other people then go and emulate, that's not a good way. We're not being adversarial with mm. the outdoors. We want to be, um, you know, uh, nature and the waterways are unforgiving to people who are being um, right. just, you know, not being safe. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then of course, I really hope you ask us about our next journey in life with being parents on the water. <laughs> well, no, certainly. Yeah. Cause well, it sounds like your daughter got the, got the Gary treatment. To, oh, totally. <laughs> so tell us about your daughter. Yeah. Well, Sila was born in 1999 in the summer in July. And so um, we had her out on the water right away. Gary and I were super comfortable with that. And, um, you know, <laughs> I remember paddling in Tomogamy after we'd gone to my parents and Gary's parents and we went to Tomogamy and our, our dear elderly friend, Aunt Dorothy, comes trotting down from her cabin and Gary calls, we've got a six pounder <laughs> we'd like to show you and aunt dorothy comes toddling along the dock with her little walking cane she still went out fishing and all of that and she looks in the boat and she goes you've got a baby <laughs> expecting a good size a not a walleye not a walleye yeah. <laughs> i know she's, uh, that's right that was kind of cute and uh yes yeah, sila um definitely and the i guess the most beautiful part of it all was now planning trips where it was at first you know you can carry a baby in a backpack mm. but then uh, the little person gets on their feet and you've got to go slower at their speed and their interest and uh, luckily for us uh, and maybe because we love the water so much Sila saw us always having so much fun in the water mm. that she was very comfortable around water so she learned to swim confidently early and also, the cold water didn't bother her. And on the long journeys, when we were, we would take time. We would always be stopping. We had a Malamute at that time and our little daughter. And we would, you know, we just planned our days in a way different timing than we did when it was just the two of us. But Gary loved that from a photography standpoint, just all the time that we could take mm. and things that we could explore. And the things that a child shows you, your that sense of wonder that we can often get a bit jaded in or cynical or different things children make you see the world with a sense of wonder again yeah. they make you lie on the ground they make you crawl around on the ground they make you feel things and touch things and it's the greatest gift to give a child is to take them out into nature to feel and see and hear and listen and use all our senses to um, just keep connected with this beautiful mother that is our earth that you know gave birth to us all <laughs> that's what is it more challenging to chat paddle with a child or a malamute <laughs> i would say it's nice to have the two <laughs> is there balance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one's tipping the because, canoe one way and the other's tipping it the other because, way because the, the malamute actually can look after the child for you nice nice <laughs> Be a storyteller. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, if like, we have to leave leave her leave the child somewhere, there's the Malamute to protect her. Yeah. There you go. Don't worry, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> she portaged back and forth. <laughs> but I would say that um that is the storytelling part. Mom um Sila remembers at twenty four now and she says, The thing I remember about canoe tripping with you guys is that we would paddle all day in the rain sometimes. Yeah. And mom, you'd be like story after story. Uh. And when we'd get in the tent, I don't know how you and dad did it, but we were always warm and dry in the tent having dinner. And I don't know how you did, but I always remember how comfortable I felt and secure in the tent. So that was a, that's a nice memory to have uh, for her. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. And just taking that time for her too, I think is such a, what a gift that is for all of you, I guess, really, you know? Like well, it is, it's a gift for every family. And I think a lot of people discovered that through COVID mm. was getting outdoors and being close to nature. And we all have a different experience of the outdoors and nature. And I've learned a lot through COVID, a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities to learn uh, why, um, you know, a lot of the outdoors has been a very white privileged community. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that because, and you don't notice it when you're part of that community, but why is that? And it's because um, people 
they don't have the equipment. Mm -hmm. They don't have the um, ability for their parents to take them outdoors. They're working maybe two or three jobs and the outdoors doesn't appear as a safe place. And there's some terrific people out there now who are um, in the BIPOC community, people, indigenous people mm -hmm. of color, and they're showing and leading and providing opportunities to have safe, inclusive ways of getting people into the outdoors in urban places. So I would say one of the greatest things that we've learned in the recent years has been taking all this, you know, long distance travel experience and then putting it into our efforts at a nature conservancy where we have like a big canoe 36 feet long and our canoes for conservation program that gets people on the water in a safe inclusive way to train guides you don't really need to know how to paddle yet you can you can do it with your grandmothers and grandfathers like multi-generation with grandkids and you can also do it with people who are very physically adept in doing things with other people who maybe aren't so much inclined and so everybody can do this beautiful experience on the water in a way that's very um, historic and heritage connection to the land and it's a storytelling platform from the water that makes us appreciate um, these this substance that gives us life water mm. <laughs> so i love the trajectory of our lives that way because it started out as i said conservation and care of the land interest in the wildlife and being like gary growing up connected to the foods of the land to one where we're able to share it a lot more now and be part of an organization that also um, is about giving back and connecting to the greatest lake mm -hmm. on earth yeah and i want to touch on that too because you you mentioned the boreal forest and all the, mm -hmm. the canoeing and paddling you've done through that and you have now um a smithsonian you're working with the smithsonian museum with a an exhibit that's touring you're going to start touring both canada and the u.s calling knowing nature stories of the boreal forest um can you just explain what that is and what the inspiration was for that well the inspiration came from paddling all these rivers to water, different watersheds, uh, Atlantic, Pacific, uh, uh, Arctic, uh, and realizing that, that the boreal forest was under threat. Mm -hmm. uh, Clear-cut logging, uh, just apathy in general. And we needed to reach out uh, to an educational institute, and that was the Smithsonian. And so we made a special effort to get down there and they opened up their doors to us and we were able to explain to them uh, how vast the boreal forest was of its importance for Turtle Island and that we, um, we would love to work with them and be able to create mm -hmm. an exhibition to communicate the value of the boreal forest. Yeah. I mean, you talk, I mean, people talk a lot about the Amazon and its importance just in the climate change issues that we're dealing with right now. But the boreal is absolutely equivalent to that, isn't it? The lungs of the planet, the circumpolar forest, it's the largest terrestrial ecosystem on Earth. And for the United States, their only real connection to the boreal is Alaska. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's very foreign to most people. So when Audubon came on board and Jeff Wells um, and ourselves were the early people. It took 15 years to get this off the ground with the Smithsonian. <laughs> they moved very slowly. And so it launched this year at uh, Michigan State University's museum, um, the Michigan State Lansing. University in Lansing. And uh, it's there until November. And it has an educational program and it's open to the public. And it takes a very, uh, I remember Carol Bossert, the um, program um, lead who, the project coordinator, she said, this is the greatest um, uh, social justice story of our time. There are over 600 First Nations who live across the Boreal and they're being deeply connected, uh, I should say affected by climate change. And so those, the stories we want to tell are through indigenous nations and um, that life that the forest has brought. So, you know, whether, it, and we know, we know this to be the, the truth and to bring those voices uh, through the exhibition and actual on the ground connections that indigenous nations are having. So as it travels and technology advances, there will be more ways for the connection uh, in real time in the galleries to um, to connect with, for instance, um, 
I know right now at Shaplow Cree First Nation, they're building another birch bark canoe with Chuck Manda mm. and the community, the guardians are doing this work. And it's such a superb way to connect with the boreal forest, the materials of the forest to um, a vessel, Chimon, of spirit that holds you on the water and has been there. You know, the land gives form to a vessel that has traveled for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And isn't it neat to connect with the youth and the elders with the wisdom to do this work? So those are actually the real stories that we hope that the Smithsonian is able to connect to through mm -hmm. the exhibition. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's, um, it, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. What are you seeing when you go to the exhibition? Like oh, there's a birch bark canoe, obviously, but what, what other things that tell that well, story? Well, Lots of my photographs. <laughs> and, and, and Gary, I should add, is a brilliant photographer. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> and, and there's also a, a, a wonderful film. Uh, the Issue with Tissue. The Issue with Tissue. <laughs> uh, that's, and I, really that's where the whole impetus I, I really started mm -hmm. for us was because we realized that's what was the depletion of the boreal forest was through clear-cut logging and, and creating tissue for the North American market yeah, right. and and that's uh, so and that's what this uh, the issue with tissue film uh, hits that right on the head and we're so excited about where that film can go I'd like to tell you something uh, when we went down there we had the launch and everything the next day Gary and I led the first educational um, tour of the exhibit so they were a whole group of inner city kids and um, we actually knew their teacher from many years ago and so he very excited brought them and we did a circle outside and we got them breathing, you know, breathing out, breathing in, thinking about the trees and all of that so that we could um, go into that exhibition. There was a big globe in the room next door to the exhibition where we showed them where the boreal forest is. It was just a big, huge, cool. And then we walked them across and you enter through this kind of doorway of the forest. And the first thing in front of them is, and it took like 50 different tries to find a material that would act as, as moss, as sphagnum moss. Because of course it's got to be um, not real, but it's got to feel real. Right. And the kids just loved it. They were patting it and holding it. We were talking. And in this immersive forest experience, which is like Gary's photography surrounds you, but embedded in it all are little microphones with all the different boreal songbirds. And Jeff Wells, um, just like they vetted all this at Audubon because, you know, three billion songbirds nest in the boreal. It's hugely important. So even if you live, you know, somewhere in the southern states, you see the birds passing through at your feet or you are connected to the boreal if you love those birds. And with that massive network of creating Merlin ID, which is an app on your phone mm -hmm. where you can connect through the sounds, you actually could use the ID in the exhibit and you could identify the birds. <laughs> which yeah, I thought yeah. it's very authentic and then you would see the birch bark canoe and there were other um, all kinds of different um, the touch uh, touch and feel with uh, uh, the animal tracks along the shore um, I mean kids love hands-on and working with a big puzzle of the seasons and it's um, it, it, tactile experiences are what children love but adults love them too so um, yeah, we, we've enjoyed many, many times visiting Science North, for instance, <laughs> or in Sudbury. Institutional experiences, of course, are the step you hope that are away. The next step is going into the outdoors yourself and, and uh, learning about things from nature itself. It sounds amazing. So the plan is for this to continue on from Michigan State to across the states and across Canada. Yes, yes. They lined up, um, you know, a series of different venues that mm -hmm. it will go to. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping it comes here to Northern Ontario. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's always a big, um, it's a big uh, challenge to get these kinds mm -hmm. of things on. And it's not us who do that. But as advisors for the exhibition, we're among a group of people. Um, we are looking forward to seeing it here and sharing it and that as i said in more remote ways as well i mean the timing of it with i mean the boreal forest is on fire now in a way it's never been before and it's all climate related um i mean it, it's 
the timing is good, I guess, if you can use that word, but it must be heartbreaking yeah. for you guys to watch these fires going through a land that you love so much. Well, it's heartbreaking to the people who live there, mm -hmm. the people who are on the front lines, yeah. who are experiencing heat in the summer, droughts, um, you know, just the changing landscape mm -hmm. for not just the people, but all the wildlife that lives there and those that don't leave like the polar bears mm -hmm. or, um, yeah, it, it is, it is an existential crisis that we find ourselves in as human beings and for all life. And um, the boreal forest tells a very poignant story of that. So, but, but we wanted to, uh, you know, hear those voices and then take action. What are the things that we can all do? And we can all do things that help make it better. <laughs> no, no question. Yeah. Well, I've still got you. I, I mean, you've done so many amazing things. We can't get to them all, obviously. But I, I was lucky to just recently watch Painted Land, um, mm -hmm. your Group of Seven project, um, which, I, you know, it's basically you guys going and finding this, the sites where original Group of Seven paintings were done um, in Northern Ontario, mostly, right? And, and taking pictures of those. It's a great movie. I, saw, I think I wound up seeing it on Knowledge, which is BC's... Um, mm -hmm is BC's public public broadcaster but uh um it's a, just a really moving and incredible movie but what, what I mean what was the germ of the idea behind that it it was uh conservation yeah Explain that. Cons it was uh, we felt that if we could locate the painting sites because we had an idea that the closest one might have would probably be about 50 kilometers as the crow flies from where we actually live and that was up at the Montreal River mm. and we knew there were uh, the threats to those landscapes um, many of the uh, townships that the group of seven painted in in the Algoma area um, were privately owned still are and we needed to uh, at least address uh, the we first of all we had to determine whether there was any any credence to the fact that the group of seven painted here and if we can actually find the places themselves mm -hmm. that was the important thing for for me because if you get a chance to look a lot of a lot of folks are familiar with the group of seven canvases that are in uh, in major galleries across Canada around the world uh, but if you look at the at their plein air paintings, this this the oil sketches they made, they're they're very realistic, and I thought they're so realistic. These places, I, you should be able to find them. Mm -hmm. Find the very places where where Lauren Harris sat on the edge of the Montreal River, and or J.H. McDonald again sat on the edge of the Montreal River and painted the solemn land. If we could, if we could establish enough painting sites along the way, especially along the north shore of, of Lake Superior and along the Algoma Central Railway in areas that were privately held lands, we could create enough um, interest in the idea of preserving those landscapes. Uh, where the Group of Seven painted on the North Shore, some of those painting sites are in Nays Provincial Park, but a lot of them are. Uh, on private land or they're on crown land, uh, treaty land that uh, is, well, in, in, it could be, a mine could op operate, could open mm -hmm. up uh, right where those painting sites were. Um, so that's, that was, the whole idea was, was wilderness preservation. It wasn't just another layer of, of, uh, of an entity for a, an amazing landscape through the group of seven that if we could create that that connection and that went as far as Algonquin Park, Georgian Bay, uh, North Shore Lake Superior and the Algoma Central Railway. That um, I loved I have to say like that whole you guys being able to recreate those train trips and where they would go up and like just pull their boxcar off and sit and paint I mean that. Well it 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 is it's so it's such a the romance of the railway I guess uh you know, being able to be on the Algoma Central Railway uh, and get off. Uh, it was the, uh, t not the tour train as people think of it here, but uh, the um, passenger rail. And ironically, the passenger rail closed down the year after we finished Painted Land oh, no. and forever the coalition for Algoma's um, 
uh, passenger train has been an ongoing effort by people here in Sault Ste. Marie and in other areas to get the train going again as a passenger rail. And passenger rail is one of those incredible stories that speaks to a form of travel that is the least impactful for human beings to move around and to connect it to this story. Because you have to see Gary's photographs with the paintings and see them fading between one and the other. That's how we present them. Because people are astonished. And it really was like a needle in a haystack when... um, Gary started looking for these, and we worked with um, Michael Birch, who lives here in Sault Ste. Marie as a sculptor, and um, he was the director at the Algoma Art Gal- at the Art Gallery of Algoma. And when we started talking about the familiarity that people had in places like Algonquin and so on, but still people didn't know that these are specific places. That specific rock is where an artist sat that specific scene and then when you see the fading between the paintings and the um the photographs that's what intrigued white pine pictures and they were uh, co producers with the film and the magic of that with um phyllis ellis who directed the film was just really really wondrous i would say the one layer that was not in the film that we are very cognizant of is um, an Indigenous perspective that was very much um, an elders, friends, friends that are live in these communities like Chief Duncan Mishano at Bikdagong Nishnabeg, which is Heron Bay, mm-hmm. where they would have passed right through. And he talks of his grandfather would have worked right at the, the railway station there, would have met them coming through. Shirley Horn, who is an elder here from Missinabi Cree First Nation, who went to the residential school at Shingwalk, who talks about the train as, you know, something that took her away from home, but back out to her land in the boreal. And as... <clears throat> a way of you know knowing Caldwell she knew it when it was a village he Mm. lived up there and so to bring that insight to it would be maybe a second chapter to all of this work is that we don't just look at history as something that's just a hundred years old or 150 years old as often people do um, that the land has been here for hundreds of thousands of years and so have people and connected to it in this way Duncan Mishano said to us once that, you know, people don't know our story here, but they know the group of seven. Perhaps if they come for this reason to see the art and these places, they see that they are real and that people live here and have lived here for a very long time and they will get to know our community and our stories as really the fundamental layer of of the group of seven story is the land. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it was a beautiful connection to grow with us and on us as we worked on on this project. No, it's so true. And I mean, so what you guys do incredibly well is include First Nations voices and I mean, it just i mean it just adds layers of richness to our story right i mean having more diversity more voices more it doesn't detract it only builds who we are as a people and everything around that right and the storytelling just is better for it oh it's just a beautiful thing and i um we're we're so blessed that we have this conservation organization, the Lake Superior Watershed Conservancy mm-hmm. that we work with. We founded 18 years ago, and it's for the whole watershed of Lake Superior and the care of water that flows from the forests. There's no international line that actually goes through the lake. There is no line through the lake. <laughs> right. It's, um, you know, a geopolitical fiction that we write on the map that, yes, it has very you know, you cross the border. Yes, there's a border. But for um, for Indigenous nations who live around these waters, the connections between family and histories and knowledge of connection of, to the waterways is a beautiful way of knowing the water and this like water trail that connects the waters that flow to all the lower Great Lakes. And so having a conservation organization that speaks for these waters 
and the projects that we can do around water trail connections, around having a big canoe, getting people on the water. We're doing a partnership this summer with the Métis Nation uh, here, the historic Sault Ste. Marie Métis community. And it's a beautiful way for them to tell their story of the river lots and uh, the fishing and the connection to the land and the foods and the medicines and and sharing those stories. And we provide a platform for doing that. That's mm-hmm. the ecological water story of this waterway. Um, hey, people paddle out on this river here, the St. Mary's. You know, it's no a Canadian Heritage River designation, but it's such an important waterway in the heart of Turtle Island, North America, at the heart of the Great Lakes. You can see it from outer space. And it's this place that we've often you know, as the Great Lakes have been a place we turned our backs on. We dumped our stuff in them for so long. And now we're looking back to them. We're getting on them. We're looking at them as these wondrous source of fresh water for the planet. And they have stories to tell. And so, yeah, like Gary and I are super happy at this stage in our life after over 40 years together <laughs> that, uh, you know, there's um, lots of wonderful people to work with mm-hmm. and um, great voices of all ages and abilities, like you say, the diversity of people and their perspectives on water, especially new Canadians coming uh, from, you know, all these where people come from and their appreciation for these places. Right. And um, yeah, the, the connection of water is yeah. Sorry, I'm a bit wordy, but <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I <laughs> often, I will often ask our guests what what brings them hope, but I'm hearing a ton of hope just in mm-hmm. everything you've just said right there. Well, we've got to be uh, particularly um, for for good or for bad. The the TRC process brought forward the tr- truth and reconciliation. reconciliation process brought forward for all of us um, ways of knowing Indigenous history um, that we should have you know they they've always known and we are getting to know uh, and and you know horrifyingly so in many circumstances but i will say that bringing you know having these conversations now is a really big opportunity to see water as life to see water not as a thing but as nebe as life mm-hmm. and those voices um to um include in conservation work is is like they they are they are the beginning of it all <laughs> and and so so I, I i you know refer to and defer to uh that and all we want to do is to be able to help and uplift as our colonial backgrounds and privilege encourage us to do is to just bring those voices forward and make things happen where um you know, those incredible elders who speak up for grassy narrows and the waterway <laughs> that they've held on to for the life that it gives their purpose and their, you know, wow, like that's an incredible thing when a waterway poisons you, the fish poison you, and yet you stick with it because it's your responsibility to this landscape that your ancestors come from. That is an amazing, hopeful thing that people have such resiliency to uh, yeah. to be connected to the land. We have so much to learn from that. I, you guys have been so generous through the time and I don't want to keep you, but I do ask uh, one last question, uh, which I ask everybody. And it's usually my question is, what's your favorite spot in Canada? But I actually want to ask you your favorite stretch of water to paddle. And I, I want an answer from each of you. I would say uh, the Puckasaw coastline. Uh, it's It's the... A, the Great Lakes, it's the largest section of wilderness shoreline left in the whole of the basin. Um, and if you left from the historic mouth of the Mishpacotan River mm-hmm. um, and headed west uh, towards uh, Mishpacotan Island and started turning and, and following that coastline up as far as uh, Hattie Cove, Marathon, Coldwell. This is um, Lake Superior th- then, yeah? That, that's... Yeah, that if I had to paddle one place for the rest of my life and couldn't go anywhere else, I think that would be it. Beautiful. But you have to throw in a few of the watersheds too, like like the Dog River, like and and the Puckasaw, uh, the Swallow. The f- few of those you have to include those, so you can do some some inland paddling as well. Yeah, well, I mean, what's that landscape like? Like, what what is it that you love so much? Well, it's it, there is no. Um, 
uh, access in terms of road access, mm. rail access. Uh, anybody that's there is in a boat. They're they're paddling a canoe or a kayak. Or they're in a. You might see the odd power boat. But the idea of it's you're on the largest freshwater lake on the planet. You can drink the water yeah. wherever you are, coming out of the creeks, coming out of the springs, the lake itself. Wonderful sweeping sand beaches, uh, giant headlands of granite. Uh, the, the the history uh, that's you're you're just you're just you're paddling past history uh, uh, people have been traveling on for thousands of years along this coastline mm -hmm. so those campsites that were there thousands of years ago they're still there and just being able to set your tent up look out at that sunset that people have been looking at for thousands of years it it gives you it gives you hope for the for yeah. the planet beautiful and Joni <laughs> oh, like there's just so many places. That's just such a hard question. Um, this spring, we were um, we were on the Gooley River, and um, I, just as an example of something that's really close to home to our hearts, uh, we thought for our 40th anniversary we would put our canoe in at Searchmont and paddle down towards Lake Superior on this beautiful river that flows through our lives. We pass over the bridge all the time going from Goulie into Zoo St. Marie. And um, it is just so lovely with these great big cliffs and the flow of the water. We always loved moving water. We love paddling white water to our lives together. We love the dance of that experience together. And though it's not real rigorous white water, it's still real fun. You can go out in the eddies and just seeing the spring birds nesting, the ospreys and the different spring birds coming back. Um, uh, it was just such a beautiful day. Um, the river flows out into Gooley Bay, which an elder down at Gooley Mission, Miriam Agawa, told us, Chiwekwedon means the place that hugs you. And we have a wetland preserve on Gooley Bay, on Chiwekwedon. And whenever you travel a river, you are so connected to uh, the, the height of land forests and the importance of caring for them because they hold the waters that then flow down to the lower um, places mm -hmm. and it's just all this big flow of water and uh, like I don't know can't, uh, uh, do we just have good memories of paddling with our daughter there and <laughs> um, I so like I'll just use that as a wonderful close place to home <laughs> that sounds sounds like a lovely and special place yeah well listen I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us it's been a really really lovely conversation and thank you for all the work you're doing too with the boreal forest and beyond Thank, Thank you, you David. David. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Wow. Well, I really enjoyed that, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Gary and Joni as well. Such a smart, thoughtful, inspiring couple doing incredible work. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please uh, give us a rating and review where you listen. It helps to bring more listeners to this podcast, um, which helps us continue to do this podcast. So, you know, really go for the glowing review, the five-star rating. It all helps feed the algorithm. And also go back and listen to our two previous canoeing series this year. We, of course, had Justin Trudeau uh, talking about his early days of canoeing, canoeing with his father, learning to canoe from paddling icon Bill Mason. There's some great stories in that one. And our old friend Adam Schultz, of course, as well, talking about his epic, epic journey from his backyard in Lake Erie all the way up to the Arctic Ocean uh, north of Labrador and Quebec. Another incredible Adam Schultz journey, so be sure to listen back to that. And of course, we have a canoe series from the seasons before as well with Roy McGregor and another episode with uh, paddling legend Wally Shaber. So go back into our archives. Everything is free back there. There's tons and tons of great conversations with explorers of all stripes. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. Very strong. Every clue over every inch of the country that could be, we were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.